This is Vigneto, a podcast. From the sun and soil they grow. From the land and sea they roam. Drinking wine in the great unknown. So on the Vigneto podcast, I'm doing a new series about books on the wine industry and different wine regions and areas and aspects of the wine industry. And my first guest in this new series is Alan Tardy. I've known Alan for a while. He is an educator, a wine writer, an author, and in a past life, he was also a chef and a restaurateur. And I'm really excited to have him on the program. So welcome. Hi, Alan. It's nice to have you on the Vignetta podcast. Thank you Hi, for joining Diana. me. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here and chatting with you. So I, I know you're a published author of a couple of books, but your most recent book is the one on champagne. That's quite an achievement. Can we talk about it? Can you tell me about uh, this book? Sure. And and by talking about this book, I might um, have to kind of bring up the, the one that preceded it by about 10 years. But um, yes, the, the book is called Champagne Uncorked. And um, when I decided to, to really to really delve into champagne, I was actually living full time in Italy, in Piemonte. <clears throat> and, um, and, you know, in, in Piedmont, uh, I, I worked, I, I lived in a village right in the middle of the Barola wine area. And I was working extensively in the vineyards and in the wineries. And I managed the Cantina Comunale in the village of Castiglione Folletto, where I lived. And, and in, in Piemonte, especially in the Barolo zone, um, the Piemontese are very uh, straightforward in some ways. So you have usually one grape variety uh, from one particular place. And that's, that, that's with Barolo, that's how it is, Barolo Barbaresco, that's 100% of Nebbiolo, of course. From, you know, nowadays from, from one particular site or maybe a blend of different sites, that's how it was originally. But nowadays, um, there's a lot of emphasis on individual vineyard sites, whether they're bottled individually or, um, or some sites are blended together. And I was working in many of these different vineyard sites and really there was this like oneness of Nebbiolo from one particular site that makes, makes a wine. And when I happened, had an opportunity to, uh, to go to Champagne um, and I think it was because I had, I had read, I, I had written an article or two about sparkling wines for the New York Times. Um, and I got this invitation to, to go to, to Champagne. Um, and here I, I found something completely different where that most Champagne, uh, like, like most Barolo up until a certain point in history, most Champagne is a blend. Historically, it's a blend of not just different vineyard sites, but different grape varieties from many different places and even many different vintages. And so I was really blown away by this concept of mixing together all of these different ingredients, like making you know, a very complicated recipe <clears throat> that, right. that kind of, when it works, when it works well, blends into this unique multi-dimensional whole that is more, much more than the sum of the individual parts. So I, be, I became really fascinated with that. And that's where the idea for, for this book about champagne uh, came up. It was, it was I, I really wanted to delve deeply into 
the Method Champenoise, the classic, the making of a classic cuvee. So was it kind of um, not in juxtaposition or in opposition to, but sort of an addition to your view of terroir that you found living in Piedmont and working in Piedmont for so long? Was it a new definition of terroir to you? Absolutely. It was, it was, and that's, that's a good way to put it. It's not like an antithetical to that or, or oppositional. It's, it's a different sort of, a different sort of approach to terroir because, um, you know, I was, I was learning hands-on the, that each, each, vin, each individual vineyard parcel and, and um, in, in Piemonte, they used to call them cru. It's, uh, it's, it sounds French. And of course, Piemonte um, was once part of uh, under French rule. And the, the, the dialect, the Piemontese dialect, has a lot of French in it. So the Piemontese did, and they still do, refer to individual vineyard sites as cru. And they have their own personality and their own identity. And part of it comes from exactly where they're located, what the soil makeup is, the exposition. Uh, all of those different different components that all together add up to terroir. And then that's translated into the wine. <clears throat> so um, in, in Champagne, in the classic cuvee, you have a blend of all these different grape varieties from different parcels and sites in the extensive area of Champagne. And what I, what I really learned from that is that when it's done well with, with thought and um, uh, and some kind of a, a logic behind or, or a, a sensibility, let's put it that way, because it's not that logical necessarily. But when you blend all of these components in, in a way that, that kind of heightens the individual uh, components of that, terroir still is there. It doesn't eliminate, it doesn't eliminate the terroir. It's sort of combining these different aspects into a whole. So the, the, the terroir aspect is still there. It might not be quite as, as clear and, um, and exposed as like I say, a single vineyard, uh, a single parcel uh, wine. But if you, if, you are, if you become familiar with the base wines, you see what they contribute to the whole. And that's, that was one of the fascinating things that I had an opportunity to do. So the whole idea of this, this book about Champagne was to take one house, one um, maison, and follow through the entire complicated, prolonged process of creating a classic champagne cuvee. And uh, an important part of that, of course, it really starts with um, pre-harvest, how the season is developing from, uh, from the winter time to, the, to when the, the, the vine wakes up again after dormancy and bud break and all of those things that lead up to harvest. And that's where I began in the book. Um, through to the, the vinification process, and then all of these individual base wines that are created. And one of the really fascinating parts of this whole sort of journey was doing an extensive um, uh, tasting of the base wines. And that's how you really get to know them from, you know, from the same vintage, right? The new wines that have just been finished the fermentation process. And these are gonna be the base wines for that particular cuvee, which is not a vintage champagne, but uh, usually there's the, the majority of the wine that goes into a, a classic champagne cuvee is uh, the majority of it is from a base year and then you go back and add reserve wines as well. So it was really one of the really fascinating <clears throat> processes of researching 
uh, and then writing this book about champagne was doing these these tastings of the base wines from a given uh, a, a given vintage, which in this case for the book was 2013. Hmm. And that and that was really really fascinating because and I, I you know I talk a lot about this in the book because it was it was it's crucial it was critical to the whole to my experience but also understanding how this how a, a wine like this is created when I was first tasting these wines and I I I was sitting in with the the tasting panel the the people the the chef de cave and mm-hmm. the other the other key people who were involved in the the winery activity. And um, I had, I had, I've tasted many wines and I've tasted, certainly being in Barolo, you taste many, many, many wines during the vinification process, which for Barolo takes at least three years or much, sometimes much longer than that. You can taste the wines at different points in this, in this development and maturation. And then once they're finally released, I did a lot of tastings in Barolo where you taste the recent releases of uh, of these wines, Barolo and Barbaresco. And when they're actually released after three and a half years of aging, they're, they're released around the market, but they're very young and they're, they're, it's hard initially to taste them. But I got used to that and I got used to the, to the tannin and things like that. But I had never done a tasting like this before of base wines and champagne because these even when you taste a, a new, like a, a champagne, a, a Barolo, or it could be a Montepulciano, a Brunello di Montepulciano, or a Torazzi or something like that, a wine that, that needs time to mature and evolve once it's been released. What, when, so, you, when you first taste it, everything is there in the glass, and then it's a question of how it's going to develop and settle down, and how long, when it's going to, might reach its peak, what is the, the maturation frame but when you're tasting these base wines in champagne it's not like that because what you're tasting is just a component it's like an individual ingredient from you know a, a, a stew with many different ingredients added to it so you kind of have to imagine what other components that component will need and kind of keep all of these ideas in your head as time goes on i would imagine well, yes yes and i mean i'm i'm i i was and i still am a novice at this but people who have been doing this for for all of their their professional lives, and maybe even before that, um, they they have a they can they understand much better how it's going to happen. And the other the thing is not it's not just about the blending, because you have to remember that you're, you're talking about different grape varieties from different places within the Champagne area, and it's they can be very very uh, different and distinct places. And remember, there are uh, seven different great varieties that are permitted for champagne. So it's, it gets very complicated in that sense. Then you add the reserve wines to this and some people uh, add more than others. And, um, but so you have, then you, you, you have to, you have to create this, this very complex wine that is still not even, um, not even the wine yet because it has to undergo a second fermentation process, which changes everything. So, um, and that's that's also, of course, a, a big part of the book. I followed this this particular um, producer through this entire process, and um, this was uh, based on the two thir- 2013 vintage. I don't even think the wine has been released yet. So there is the second fermentation process, and then there is the maturation process on the lees in the bottle afterwards. So so these are these are things that really have a, a 
in, incredible impact on the wine, the, on the finished wine. So it, it's, and how you can go back to this, this tasting of the base wines and have an idea of how there are all these different components of wines are going to, are they going to fit together into, into a, a kind of a whole and then undergo a second fermentation process and then undergo a, a, an extended maturation process on the lees in the bottle is, um, it is dauntingly complex and how could you, and, and I think at the end of the day too, a lot of it is just instinct. It's not mathematical. It's, and, and for the people right. that, that really right. do it, uh, they really pay a lot of attention to this process. It's not set in stone either. So it has to change every year based on what the base wines is and then which, which reserve wines you want to use and how many and what proportion. So um, it's very creative. And I think, I think the people that many of the, the, the people who are working with this assemblage is referred to as assembly of the, all these different mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of it is instinct. It's not, it's not just, you know, um, by rote. So I have a couple of questions for you about, about all of it. So um, first of all, what I find funny is, in my experience, all the producers in Barolo or in Brunello, in Montalcino, love champagne. Was that your experience too, that all the Italian producers love champagne? So they must have been excited about the book that you were writing. Certainly, I always, certainly in Barolo, I, I, I would imagine, I would imagine in Brunello too, but um, and, and Chianti, uh, but I know that the Piemontese are very, um, very appreciative of Champagne and they enjoy it a lot. And I know that for the Champagnois, Piemontese is an important market for them. It's also, you know, right across the border. So it's Right. So you were close. So that was my other question, kind of logistically speaking. So did you move to Champagne? Did you go up? How long did it take you to write this book? Was it a, a process of some months? Was it some years? Did you go back into it? How did you kind of figure out how to how to create this opus well um yeah let me let me back up just a, a bit um one of the one of the big um and i well I'll, I'll say who also who the who the the producer was if i if i may please um, it's uh krug the house of krug and when you're thinking about this, this process of creating a classic cuvee, a blend of all of these different things as opposed to a vintage, uh, a vintage wine from one particular site, Krug is really the place to go because this is what they are all about primarily. Now they also, <clears throat> they also do um, single parcel and single vintage bottlings of champagne like the Clos de Menil, the Clos de Bonnet. Um, they do vintage. So uh, in the vintage, all of the, the grapes come from one particular harvest with the clothes, the two clothes that they do. Mm -hmm. um, they, they come not just from the same vintage, but from a, a specific spot in a very, a very small specific vineyard, uh, vineyard parcels. Um, but uh, so this, these were, this was really the, the, the house that I wanted to use as sort of the case in point. And it's not, it's, so the book is, is, they, Krug is the, the house that I followed very closely. I spent a lot of time with them. And it's not, but it's not really a book about Krug. It's a book about Champagne. Um, so one of the big, one of the big issues right from the get-go was, um, was getting, getting Krug to sign in on it. Because, you know, Champagne producers, especially the Maison, Mm -hmm. Tend to be a little bit 
a little bit closed or a little bit secretive about their processes and how they do things and why they do them. And, uh, and it's been maybe especially Krug, they had had a reputation up until not too long ago to be um, a little bit uh, reserved and not wanna, they, they, in fact, they made the, for most of the time that the, the house has been, uh, has been active, it, they didn't even, they made a grand cuvee or it was called special cuvee before that. It was a non-vintage wine and they, they really only started making vintage wines uh, and the, the clos much later. Uh, so they were, they were not, they would not really reveal what the, what the, what the recipe was, what the proportions of different grapes in, in the, the uh, a grand cuvee and um, how much reserve wines were used in them. So they were kind of considered to be a little bit secretive about that. And they just didn't want people to worry about the details, just enjoy the wine, you know, but it also creates a little, created a little bit of difficulty for, uh, for, for people who love champagne and who collect it and who have a cellar because they could never distinguish one grand cuvee from another. So it's, it it's really is helpful to know what the base here is if you know how much reserve wine is, is in it, it can help you understand the wine better. But so that was a big, um, a, I don't want to say a hurdle, it was a process to mm -hmm. uh, kind of propose this idea to them. And we talked about it for quite a while. And, you know, I think that they were curious, but a little bit hesitant. And, um, and finally, they said, they said, okay, and that, that took a couple of years right there, just to sort of be going back and forth about this. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was that was one of the big um, uh, the big challenges right off the bat, and I have to say that once uh, once we were we were in in agreement, then the doors were open. The doors were were you know were thrown open, and I spent time pretty a lot of time with the chef Takov and pretty much any uh, everyone else. And we I did a lot of visits with um, his name is Eric Lebel, although now he's uh, he's not really acting as a chef Takov anymore. He just he, now he's overseeing the entire the entire operation, but he's uh, he wanted you know he wanted to sort of maybe step back a little bit and um, you know take some of the pressure off. And now uh, the the person who was um, now the the chef de cave is named Julie Caville, who uh, who I also spend a lot of time with. She was really focusing on the Clos de Menil at that at that time, uh -huh. and really kind of designated to to kind of carry on uh, the the baton forwards. But so once. Once they, they agreed to do it, um, I had pretty much full access to everything. And I was, you know, I, I tried to be very careful and discreet. And, um, but so that, that was a big part of it. And then I, I had to go through the entire process of, of following this wine. And that, as I said, that really begins with the, the, the development of the, the growing season. And I spent a lot of time uh, in the, the, the spring and summer with Eric driving around, driving around Champagne, looking at the vineyards, talking to their, to the growers. Uh, and Krug is, is very, is a very classic Champagne Maison, also in the mm -hmm. sense that um, they, they don't, uh, they don't really, they didn't really own very much vineyard. And right now they have, they, they have a very small holding of their own vineyards, like the Clos de Menil, Clos d'Ambonais, some of these really key sites, they, they purchased a little bit of, uh, of a little bit of vineyard, but that was fairly recently, um, like in the sixties or seventies. So, and so, you know, they, what they rely on are sourcing grapes from throughout the Champagne growing area. And they have, 
they have their, uh, their suppliers, their vignerons, who they have to, in each year, they have to make a contract for a specific plot of, uh, of their vineyard. How much are they going to supply them with? And, um, and from where? So it's very complex, complicated in that way too. And, and Eric has to go around and, and decide um, you know, where they're gonna, well, it was Eric now, it's probably more, more Julie, but um, w where they're going to uh, get their grapes from, from who and make a contract specifically. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time doing that. And that was where I could really see this interaction between the chef de cave and the people who grow the grapes. Um, so that, and then from there, it went into the harvest, the, to actually the harvest period. <clears throat> and I was, so during all this time, I was living, uh, living in Italy. So it was very easy to get on a plane and you know, be there in an hour. And I, I would go whenever there was something happening that, um, that I needed and wanted to, to, to experience. So I, I did that. I didn't really, I, I would just stay for three or four days. Uh, but it depended on what was what was going on, so it was easy to get back and forth. And then um, after after the, the I was there for the harvest. I was there for the luckily I was there for the beginning of the harvest uh, with the Chardonnay. I was there at the uh, the Clos de Menil, and then I was also there at the end of harvest with Pinot Noir in the Clos d'Ambonnet. So I kind of really got to see the the and and you know oftentimes in between it went on for about two or three weeks. So I, uh, I would go whenever I needed to go. And then of course there was a vinification process and um, we tasted a little bit of, wine, of wines from cast. Now Krug also does, does something a little bit unique in that they, um, they ferment all of the, uh, their wine in barrel. And it's not, these are, these, are, these are old barrels. When I was there in 2013, the oldest barrel that they were using was 1964. So they, and they have, they, they, they take care of them. They maintain them and use them for as long as they can because, and they don't want the wood impact. It's just, it's just for the, the oxidative properties of fermentation in barrel. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't even use any new barrels at all. They season them for, for three or four years until the impact of the wood itself, uh, like a, a flavor or any sense of the, the woodiness of it is, is gone. So um, we tasted some of the some of the wines out of cask in the wintertime. And then there's a break for the for the holidays. And, and then I went back um, in the winter to start this this long process of tasting the base wines. And then after that, uh, we, we, they had a taste through the reserve wines and Krug has a very extensive collection of reserve wines because it's so important for them. And, and while they make these other wines now, the, the two clos and the vintage, um, the Grand Cuvée is, their, uh, is their, their standard bearer. That's their most important wine for them. And as Eric says, and, and Julie, I'm sure uh, agrees, uh, it's the most difficult wine to make, even though it's, it's, less, it's, it's considerably less expensive than either one of the two clos or, or vintage. So, uh, it's much more complex because in the close, all the grapes come from the same small parcel. So it's, it's, much, it's a little bit easier to produce. Uh, it takes 10, ten years of, uh, of, of, of <clears throat> aging, maturation um, mostly on the lees before being released compared to uh, Grand Cuvée, which is about seven. But um, there, the, the, the higher price has to do with the rarity of it. It comes from one 
particular parcel. It's, it's a very small parcel and unique in that sense. Uh, and they don't necessarily make them every year. So, um, so there's a, a lot of, you know, this, this activity went right into the, into the springtime. And then after that, it kind of culminated in, um, in the assemblage and what the actual uh, recipe, if you will, for the Grand Cuvée of based on 2013 would be. And, and um, so that was, that was really the, the whole process of creating the, the mm -hmm. wine. And then mm -hmm. it had to go through the um, through the the, the tirage, the second, the second fermentation, and right. Uh, so this is your second book, I believe. Your first book was about Piedmont, correct? Yes, um, I I moved there uh, full time in the spring of two thousand and three, and you know this book this book happened kind of spontaneously because. Uh, you know, in the, with the, the Champagne book, Champagne Uncorked, and it's called Champagne Uncorked, the House of, uh, of Krug and the Timeless Allure of the World's Most Celebrated Drink. Long title. But, um, and that, that one was very much, you know, like a, a kind of, I wanted to really delve into this particular process that I found very fascinating and, um, and different from what I had been closely experiencing in, in the Barolo area. Now with the other, with the first book, that one happened kind of spontaneously. I mean, here I was, and this is post 9-11 uh, in, in New York, things were kind of at a standstill in many other places uh, of the United States as well. Um, but, you know, New York certainly took a, took a, a, a hard hit with that, with that event. So um, I ended up moving to, to, uh, to Piedmont, to this little village of Castiglione Folletto, which is kind of the sleeper in a way of the of the Barolo, um, the Barolo villages, but it's right smack in the center of the area. And and while I was there, as I mentioned, I was working a lot in the vineyards, and you know I, I had been in, involved with wine for a long time as well as food, but this was really my first experience face to face with with grapevines, and I met. Um, a young man, then a young man, um, who had just decided to take back his family's vineyard that had been leased out for 20 years, which is quite typical, when he, mm -hmm. was, about eight, when he was about eight years old. And um, their father passed away when he was rather young and um, the, the, the mother, you know, tried to, was taking care of her two children. She could not really, um, was not really able to work the vineyard, so they leased it out for 20 years. And, when I was there, this uh, this person had just decided to to not not to lease out the family vineyard anymore, but to actually um, start to work it himself. And uh, he needed help. So, and there I was, and I was ready, willing, and uh, ready and willing to help. I don't know how able I was, but because um, he taught me how to prune, and for, for I was like, whoa, I'm, I have the opportunity. To prune That's great. Yeah. Nebbiolo vines in one of one of the prestigious vineyards of uh, of the Barolo area, and this this is a vineyard called Munye, which is just inside the boundary of Monforte in the Busia area. So it's like I was. Uh, he needed the help, and um, so he taught me how to prune, and I had an opportunity to prune these 
these vines, which was a, a, an amazing opportunity and a great experience. So, um, yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, that that sounds amazing. And what I like also about your first book is you put in all these recipes, which kind of plays on your experience as a chef. Well, for me, for me, what this book was about um, was this sort of combination of things. You know, it was very much in, in a certain way. It's a wine manual. And uh, and I and in the sense that I was learning all these things firsthand, I knew about pruning theoretically. I knew about terroir and growing season development of a, of a grapevine and maturity of grapes. I knew it, um, but kind of in an intellectual, theoretical way. And here I was learning these things firsthand, literally. I mean, I was working with a, with a pruning shears and I was learning the Piemontese terminology for for a lot of these, uh, uh, a lot of these processes. So, and, and so, and I wanted to kind of, I was making notes myself, so I didn't uh, to kind of charting what I was doing and didn't want to forget um, some, of, some of the terminology. Being a New Yorker, I, I was born in Chicago. I lived most of my adult life in New York City. So I was kind of, I'm kind of an urban metropolitan person. And, and here in Piemonte, when I moved there to this little village of Castiglione Folletto, population 701 with me, uh, and that is including- that's, that's <laughs> You were the one, seriously? Yeah, that, were you yes. were 701? Yeah, there were 700 people. And then it got bumped up to, once I became a resident, um, which took a little bit of time, but uh, to go from a visitor to an actual, where I got my residenza, uh, that's a whole other story, which is in, you know, kind of narrated in this book. But um, so I was, you know, I found myself in, forget about Italy, Italy, United States, France. I mean, what the really big difference here for me was the fact that I was in a very small community in a, in a rural kind of agricultural area. And the agriculture, the chief agricultural product here happened to be wine. So it's right in the middle, Castagnifoletto is right in the middle of what we now know of as the, the Barolo wine zone. And so, so a, big, a, a big change for me was not even so much being in Italy. I felt comfortable traveling and speaking Italian. And, but, but, you know, being in, in a, very, a very small community of people was a big, big change for me. And I, of course, I was the outsider. I mean, I was the only um, American in the vicinity, <laughs> not just the town, but... Um, at that point, 2003, there were really no, there were, there was, I knew, uh, I got to know a couple of Americans in Alba, but Alba, you know, is a big, uh, the big metropolis of 34,000 people. Um, and, you know, that, that's like cut down in a flat area, right? So up in the Lange, in the, the, the hills of the Lange, you have these little kind of um, communities, the, the little villages. And, um, and I, so I was really experiencing that. And when I first got there, I was like, who, who, who was this person? I was a non-entity because, you know, the Piemontese are a little bit reserved. They're great, right. but, um, you know, it's not, it, they're not even like Southern Italians who are, they're much more informal and they're much more embracing, especially to, you know, to outsiders perhaps. Uh, but so the, at first these people were, you know, they're a little, a little distant. And even if you, if you pass by somebody in, in the town, you know, this is like a, a tiny little village, right? 
uh, and you say don't you don't say ciao because they don't they don't recognize that ciao is informal and they would never respond to that even and I, even if you said buongiorno and at first if they don't know you they don't hear it they just don't even recognize it and then they don't respond to you that's so interesting you know and they I, I at first I said what what's going on I mean and but I then I learned it's not that they were being impolite it's just if there's an if there's someone who is an outsider who they don't know they you know they kind of they, they just don't really see them in and so and I so I you know but then after a while it changed did you ever consider naming your book 700 like 701 no no I didn't I didn't that probably I mean that probably would have been um would have been a good um a good angle you know uh, it's just so funny to be the 701st person in a town it's such a small small group of people it, yeah it is it, it is and once again this is the entire municipality in the village itself the, with the the they call it the paese and it's a mm -hmm. funny term because you know in italian paese means country but mm -hmm. when you when you talk about a, a, like a municipality you say i'm going to go in the in the in paese it's like in the little village where the castle is and where the mm -hmm. where the town hall is <clears throat> and in castle mm -hmm. Nicoletto, it's it's very small so the town hall is just adjacent to the the castle of the of the big castle of the the Folletti. Uh, so it was you know it's a very small tightly knit community. They all knew each other. Uh, I got to and I got to know them. They got to know me. And then of course people would say, "Buongiorno." That at least many of them were were still very very polite and very formal. There was there were some characters there. I mentioned mm -hmm. I, I mentioned them in my book. They were the mm -hmm. um, the people who ran the the tobacco shop, tabacaya, right. the the right. room, and um, and a bunch really bunch of characters. Uh, but who you and, you talk about in your book? I yeah, know. Yeah, but but and this woman, she I mean, she got to know me very well. If you need to buy an envelope or a stamp, that's where you go. And then she has to kind of ruffle through these boxes and pull out an envelope that's probably been there for 20 years, but she always uh, spoke to me in the formal tense. Did you, when, when did you come upon the idea of writing the book? Was it sort of, did you arrive there thinking maybe I'll spend a year here and write my, my life in, in Castiglione, uh, not Castiglione, in Castelfaletto, or was it sort of as you're living there and going through all these experiences, you came upon the desire to write this book? Like, was it a, a life goal to you to always write a book? No, I never, I never really, I never really, well, actually I, I did think about it because, um, when I when I had my restaurant, many people asked me. We we had a big clientele of people in the the um, the book the publishing industry who had offices near uh, near where the restaurant was, and they would always come for lunch. And people would say, well, "When are you going to write a cookbook? When are you going to write a cookbook?" And I didn't feel that I it you know at that time that I had anything to, to special to really say about it. So you know it was always out there, but. Um, I wasn't, nothing had really occurred to me yet. And, and even when I went to Italy, I did, did, did not think about that. I was, as I mentioned, this was kind of post 9-11, things were sort of at a standstill, some changes had happened in my life. I, um, I closed the rest, chose to close a restaurant before this, this whole thing happened. So it was a, you know, kind of a transitional time 
to begin with. And when I went there, I was not, I did certainly did not go and say, oh, I'm going to go spend a year in Italy and write a book about it. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, no, not at all. And, and in, in fact, I didn't really think about it, um, but it just, it happened really spontaneously in the sense that, as I mentioned, when I started, when I was starting to work in the vineyards and in very prestigious vineyards uh, and within the Barola wine area and being able to work with the vines directly, uh, I started kind of making notes for myself about what I was doing and what I was learning and other things like talking with people, you know, in the, in the cafe in the evening, um, all the, the guys, and they were all guys pretty much who would sit around playing cards, tarocchi, and they would all, they were all speaking Piemontese. So I started to pick up some, some Piemontese. So I was, I was being exposed to all these things and I made notes about them for myself just so I wouldn't forget them. And and then there was this kind of coming together of things, which a big part of it was, was working in the vineyards and then in the wineries and going through the entire process of, say, working with the vines in the Piemontese fashion. So pue, pue is, is the, the Piemontese word for uh, potare, which is to prune. So I was learning all of these terms and, and um and actually performing some of the, the viticultural activities that I knew about, but I had never actually done. And then there was being part of this small, uh, very kind of, I don't want to say close, but um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of like a, a unique kind of community that I hadn't really been exposed to before. And then there were the, the, the relationships that I was making with people there. And of course, the, the cuisine, which, um, which accompanied the wines very well, but I was, you know, really experiencing these, these things, the wine, the food, the people of this particular place. And, and that is what, what really kind of created the book. And so it's, it's kind of, uh, in a way you could say it's, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, it's, it's very, very much focused on working in the vineyards and the, the sort of seasonality of that and uh, the whole process of when the vine wakes up and nurturing that and, and um, you know, tying up the, the, the canes and picking off the shoots and all of that leading up to, to harvest and then what happens from there in, in the winery. So that's kind of like the timeline. But then, in, you know, in the meantime, uh, you really learning like where do these dishes come from and 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 there where they're not just sort of like something you read about in a book or take out of context but they're really kind of part and parcel of this culture of in these people's lives in this particular place so so that's why the book um, talks a lot about wine but it also talks a lot about uh the, rest of the, the typical recipes of the area. And so these are, and these are not really my recipes. I kind of, you know, tested them and, uh, and collected them, but um, they're really like the typical regional recipes of this area that are such a big part of it. That's so fun. And of course you having, you know, been a chef and owning a restaurant, it seems like a perfect combination. So can we talk for a minute sort of about more the process of writing so do you have a pen I mean I don't know I'm sure you wrote on a computer with a computer but do you have a time you write a space you used to write in the for your first book for your second book when you're writing articles because I know you also write articles yeah um you know what's your writing kind of style or way that you settle into writing a book I mean writing a book is a big achievement 
it, yeah, and it's a big undertaking. And I think, um, you know, it's, you're not going to, for me, it was not never like really a conscious effort, like, well, what should I write about next? Let me see, I, you know, <clears throat> and come up with an idea. To me, the ideas came, kind of presented themselves first. And then it was a question, if it, you know, and you, you know how it is as a, as, as a writer and even as an educator, when you, when you decide, oh, I want to do a, a presentation or, or, or a, a class on, on this, something kind of, you know, appeals to you and you want to explore it. And, and that could be a good article. A book is a different, it's just a different um, level of commitment is a bigger undertaking. So, and it has to be something that has that kind of depth and breadth, breadth that you really want to kind of dive into. With, um, you know, with the, with the first book, Romancing the Vine, the, there, it just, it just kind of happened. And once, like I said, I mean, I was sort of um, recording some of the stuff that I was learning and seeing these, these common threads that were that were sort of weaving this fabric together which you know which was like the area the wine the food the culture the interrelationships that were taking place and um so this one it, it really kind of took shape um pretty quickly and this one followed it followed the natural um timeline of of uh, the, the vine of the vineyards of the grapes growing and maturing and being harvested and then being trans transferred transformed into into wine so that's that's really kind of the, the whole the whole overlapping timeline of it and um, you know I don't want to say <laughs> I don't want to say that this book wrote itself but in a way it kind of did because <clears throat> I, I moved to Piemonte in 2003 full-time and the book the Romancing Divine was published in 2006. So it happened, you know, and by the time I, I had this idea, I had all these notes and I was having these experiences and I didn't really know where it was gonna go, but I mentioned it to, um, to, to someone in New York who was in the publishing industry. And he said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Uh, and so he, he pitched it and we, we got uh, a publishing house and a contract and all that. And then it was just a question of like, of, of putting it to paper and finding the right structure and weaving all the material in together. So, I mean, that's a pretty, that's a, a pretty quick turnaround, at least, at least for me. Yeah, very quick. <laughs> that's a very quick turnaround. And then your second book, less quick. This, well, the, Cham the Champagne book was, was very different because here, like in, with the first one, Romancing the Vine, I was, I was there, I was living it, I had experienced it. I was kind of just doing these things without intentionally doing them for a book, but then it kind of started to all come together uh, and took that. And, and I don't want to say, oh, it was easy. Here's, here's my, you know, like stack of notes. Just mm -hmm. look, it was hard to really formulate all that and, you know, create a, a structure that worked and a narrative and, and, and you know, and, and also eliminate things that, that didn't quite fit for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. but, so it took a lot of work, work to do it, but, but it, it basically had all, the, the pieces were all there. With the Champagne book, so I, and, and once again, I didn't set out to write, and I, I didn't say, oh, my next one is going to be about Champagne. Let me go and, and figure out what to do or, you know, make a Champagne guide. And there are many of those um, in this case, as I, as I mentioned kind of at the outset, I became fascinated with this idea of, of a classic 
cuvee, of a blend of all these different, these different components. And, and then the, the process of making a classic uh, method champenoise wine, where you create all this, this base wine, which is a sum of all these like different ingredients, and then um, they undergo a secondary fermentation process, which is wild. And then they spend an ex extended period of time on the lease. So I really wanted to delve into that. And, um, and, I, and I wanted, I didn't want to do it, and I didn't want it to be too technical. I wanted it to be something that would be of, accessible to anybody that's interested in wine, but also maybe of interest to people who were, who were pros, who knew a lot about champagne and about wine, that they would still find something worthwhile in it. And, and so I really wanted to just focus on that aspect of it and follow one producer through the entire process, step by step and experience it myself. And as I mentioned, I, you know, Krug was, was really the ideal candidate for that. And miraculously, they, they agreed to it. Uh, and, that, and that took a long time right there, just trying to, to get that access to make it happen. I could right. have just sat down and written a book about, about the, the process of making champagne, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to experience it firsthand. And you know, they, they were the very best possible people to do it with. So, and how fun to do a book on Krug. I mean, it was what no, a great year. It was, it was it great. Been, it must and have been an incredible experience to have access to those wines. And um, I spent a lot of time with uh, there at the, at, the, at the Maison. I spent a lot of time, as I mentioned, with the, uh, the chef de cave, Eric Libel, who was really the first. He worked with, um, with the, 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 the previous generation of the Krugs uh, as their chef de cave. And they were still very much, <clears throat> very much involved in the winemaking process at that time. But, and then um, once things changed with, with the house and it was, um, it was acquired by uh, Louis, Vuitton, Louis Vuitton Moet Annecy, LVMH. Uh, so then Eric really became the, the, the chef de cave. Um, and, Did you and, no, I was just going to say, and, and with him too, I, I, we, as I mentioned, we traveled a lot to visit the, their, their suppliers, the Vigneron, and I saw all of these different personalities, the, the, the wine growers that they, that they work with, in some cases for generations. Right. And, and I realized that that actually, aside from just, you know, getting grape juice and fermenting it and, and then making a, a, you know, kind of a blend of them, <clears throat> I realized that these suppliers <clears throat> their personalities are really in there too. So that, that brings something else to the table that, you know, you taste, you meet the producer, the, the grower. They're not really the producer. In some cases, they, they you know, they will uh, make, they'll sell wine to other people who ferments all of their, their juice. But, but these growers, their personality somehow comes across in the wines that, that their grapes ultimately make. Um, did you use the same agent for your second book or no. did you find another one or how did you, how did that process go for you? Uh, the, the, um, the process was, you know, was, this was 10 years later than the first one. So, so things had, <clears throat> things had changed a bit. Um, and it was a, it was kind of a difficult process in that um, it was first, it was first, uh, taken up by a, a very large publishing house, very prestigious publishing house. 
And then, uh, then it, it just kept <laughs> the editors that I was was going to be working with kept changing. They just kept they changed like three or four times, and then, and then after that, uh, the the uh, the person that I was working with to to try to place it, you know, we said, look, this is just not it's not going to happen. It's some musical chairs of editors here, and and so we found we found another another publishing house that was. Um, it was pretty small and independent at that point, uh, but then it got acquired by Hachette. So, um, <clears throat> so, and then you know that was that was a, a, a fine process. But it's that's always very tricky to find you know to get a publishing house and and even once you do that, get an editor an editor that you can really uh, well we really work with. I mean, I can work with just about anyone, but someone who can really see the the value and and the idea and then help bring that uh, bring that alive and for me I'm very collaborative I love feedback and and input from editors and uh, and the editor that, that that I that I wound up with was very nice she was not um, uh, you know like a seasoned wine person which was great because I wanted someone who could who, who was not an expert and was not, you know, a wine book publisher per se or editor, but someone who, who liked wine, but, but more than that wanted, you know, liked, liked editing and helping create a product that is accessible to many different people. That's such an interesting, such an interesting part, you know, piece of writing a book. People often don't think about that relationship. I mean, people who've written books do, but if you're just kind of one of those people, it's like, oh, I want to write a book. It's it's a hard and a long process. And was it long from the time you kind of finished your manuscript to when it was published? Was it published last year or was it this it year? Was it was no, last no, it, year, right? It was um, it was a few years ago. It was published in 2016. Oh, it's already been 2016. Wow, time has flown. So do you have a next book in mind? Are you thinking about something else that's, you know, working in with your new life post to this second opus? Well, um, uh, I don't really have anything yet. It, it seems, and this is not conscious at all, but it seems like I kind of go in, in 10, year, um, 10 year segments for, for a book. So there are a few ideas out there, but, but um, nothing I've really zeroed in on yet that I'm really willing to make uh, a commitment to. But one one other thing, if I could, about about the champagne book. So this this sure. took kind of a whole different form and process than than the than the first one did, because here there were there were two, you know, the big narrative for me was going through the, this this process firsthand of following along and 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 sort of exploring the process of making this uh, classic cuvee step by step and it's a very very long process in 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 champagne i mean it it, it takes years to, to make it and to mature it and then you also time goes backwards too because you're using a lot of reserve wines and so you know there's a kind of time stretch there of bringing in wines that were produced and have been stored and held for for many years that are going to add a, a different dimension to this wine and then carrying it forward with, I mean, a vintage champagne requires uh, at least three years 
on the <clears throat> on the lease and even more for when I mean, you can always go beyond that. So it's a long it's a long period. But the other the, once I started really thinking about how one could kind of narrate this in a way that would be interesting and digestible and maybe give people insights into this whole process. Very early on, I realized that you can't just, you can't just talk about making a classic champagne cuvee. You have to understand how it came about and why and how this, this whole kind of crazy process was developed. And so I, I realized that I really needed to go back in, in history and to see where the, the champagne method as we know it, why did it come about and, and how and by who and what was that process like and where has it gone from there? So I, and I didn't really set out to write a book about history, but that is the whole other kind of narrative of this, of this, this book is the whole history of Champagne from the very earliest period all the way up to the, to the present and beyond that. So there are these like kind of two timelines and and I, I had a, I really had a, I struggled a little bit with how to um, to work them to how, how to how to structure it because I didn't want to just you know typically you would say okay here's the history of champagne part one and now here is the the process of of doing this part two I didn't want to do that because I wanted to to really keep the focus on the activity and the experiences that I was having and this sort of firsthand um, you know, narrative of, of this process that I was experiencing. Uh, so what I, and I, you know, but how do you get the history in there so that it makes sense to people when they're, when they're hearing about all of this, this crazy stuff, like accumulating uh, parcels of grapes from, you know, 300 different suppliers or parcels, it's, it's nuts. Or the, you know, the process of sitting down and tasting all of these base wines 15 a day for months. So, so I, I had a, I had to find a way of inter intertwining these two narratives. And at a certain point, I just sat down and, and this was kind of, I mean, it, it, it would only make sense for this book, but I, I got like long pieces of paper and I made a timeline of the process of making the wine as I was experiencing mm -hmm. it. and mm -hmm. you know, when it happened and how long it took and all that kind of what the, what the procedure was. I made a whole timeline from from very beginning to to you know to end and beyond, because the actual narrative of my being there was when it went into the bottle and for the the second fermentation and the um, the the time surleep, which is which is still going on. <clears throat> so uh, that was one, and then the other was the whole history of Champagne from the very earliest period to the present and beyond. And so that then I I overlapped them and I had to. I had to, of course, stretch out the history of Champagne, which is hundreds of years, you know, uh, over the, the kind of shorter window of the, the period of actually making, uh, of producing this wine based on the 2013 vintage, with the time frame going back to the reserve wines. And, and Krug is famous for keeping a very big collection of reserve wines that go back, uh, way back. I think the, the oldest one that was used in that wine was 1995 and uh, and then they go way forward in terms of the maturation period so you know I found a way to kind of overlap these two timelines and then it sort of clicked in a very very logical kind of way 
That makes a lot of sense, um, you know, for that, for this particular project that, that you were working on. And, it, you know, you're really just making me want to have a glass of champagne in front of me right now to toast you and all of that work on both of these books. So my last question for you is, are there uh, regions or particular producers that you're really excited about now? Wines or spirits or something that really excites you in the in the wine industry today? Oh my God. I, I don't even know. I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, there are, there's, there's so many, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I really have a, a close affinity with French and Italian wine, but I'm not limited to that and other things kind of pop up here and there, but even, even within those realms, uh, there's, there's, there's so much that kind of grabs my attention. I mean, one of my, this is nothing new for me, but when I was actually in Champagne, um, I, I became aware of, uh, the, the still wine of champagne, Coteau Champenois, mm -hmm. and I was, mm -hmm. I was fascinated by this idea and it was very hard to actually find any of them, even in Ross when I was staying there. So I became, I became very, um, interested in that and I still am. Uh, and, and I, I think that's kind of a, a repeating theme of, um, you know, because and I've done a lot of, a lot of research and um, uh, work in, as far as, uh, uh, you know, kind of comparing these two versions of champagne and it's mm -hmm. fascinating to see a wine that everybody just assumes is, oh, sparkling wine. Mm -hmm. And it, of course, like, like any sparkling wine, well, like uh, historically, like sparkling wine in general was an accident. And the same thing, mm -hmm. I was also very involved with Prosecco. The same thing happened there. There is there is a, a still version of Prosecco and the historic area of that. So I'm very fascinated. Yeah. I was going to say, are you? That was exactly my question. I was going to ask if you were fascinated by still wine in the in Prosecco, and I guess the answer is yes. Absolutely, <clears throat> absolutely. And and now in Champagne, it's um it's really becoming more popular. And I remember when I in in 2003 and four when I was spending a lot of time there, I would. Whenever I went out to dinner, I would ask, you know, people, do you have any Coteau Champenois on your list? And they said, oh, no, monsieur. I would say, why? We're in one of the capitals of, of Champagne. Oh, but we get much better wines for the, the, that are less expensive from Burgundy. Well, yes, but they're not the same. They're, they're not the same. Um, and now, now there are many people in Champagne that are, that are really giving a lot of attention to their, their Coteau Champenois. And there are many people that are starting to produce them, like Drapier in the Aube. And uh, uh, I think there's also, I, I believe that Roterer just came out recently with some, some new Coteau Champenois because it gives you a whole different um, vision onto the sparkling wine. I love sparkling wine, but to taste some of these still wines from that area, don't, you know, I love the bubbles, but this is sort of, it allows you to get to know where that, where that wonderful sparkling wine comes from. And it, it makes you realize and the Champenois have realized this, that Champagne is not just about the bubbles, it's a wine. So that, that is, is very key. And um, Does, do any of the, uh, the still wines from Champagne make it to the United States, do you know? Are any of them sold absolutely. here? Absolutely, they are. They, but they, um, they tend to be, they tend to be, well, kind of like the restaurateurs and Ross said, they tend to be very expensive, um, but there's nothing quite like them. For example, there's, Boulanger uh, mm -hmm. makes an exceptional 
Kotel Shnapenwa. It's called uh, L'Enfant, um, something like the Hill uh, of the Enfant. I have it in my, I have it right here in my, in my, um, in my wine cup. I got this one I got from, actually from, from visiting Boulanger, but uh, something like that. I like that sound of, of wines tinkling in the background. I, that you're just making me want to have a drink. I guess it's only eleven o'clock in the morning, and I'm not at a class or doing a tasting. So I, I, I would it's be fun. remiss if I open a bottle. Not that I have a Coteau Champenoise here, but you're making me want to go out and buy one. So but you your, think your wine, is, your wine is called uh, La Cote aux, aux, La Cote aux Enfants, and it's a it's a it's an amazing vineyard, very steep, and this this is the wine. The Boulanger, if they don't, um, if they're going to make a Grand Anne, rosé mm -hmm. wine, they, mm -hmm. they use the Pinot Noir from this Les Côtes Enfants for the, to, to make the, the rosé. Um, but right. on its own, it's, they, they produce it. Lily Boulanger wanted to make uh, a still wine from this parcel, and they make it in very small quantities. And it's an exceptional wine. And now, okay, it's, it's a little pricey because it's so rare. And um, could you compare it to, you know, to like uh, a, a great Burgundy from from a, a Grand Cru? Mm -hmm. Yes, but 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 you can't. But they're not the same. They're both made from right. terroir, but they're very very different terroirs, and they express their different terroirs. So. Well, thank you for bringing that up because that is a big topic that I actually almost never talk about, and I find super interesting. So. Um, I want to thank you so much for dedicating all of this time to speaking with me and my listeners. And I want to just repeat the names of your books for a moment. And do you, do you have a website? Is it alantardy.com or, or is it there is. a yes, website? It is. is it? Yes, it is. So what are the <laughs> names of your books and are they available, let's say, on Amazon or in a store near you? Yes. So the, the first one is called Romancing the Vine, Life love and transformation in the vineyards of Barolo. And that was published by St. Martin's Press. <clears throat> and uh, the Champagne book is, um, it has a very long name, Champagne and Cork, the House of Krug and the Timeless Allure of the World's Most Celebrated, celebrated Drink, which is um, published by Public Affairs, which is part of Hachette. Well, that was fantastic. So thank you so much for speaking with me, Alan. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Suzanne. It was a, a pleasure. Anytime. So I was just speaking with Alan Tardy about two of his books, one about his experiences living in a small town in Piedmont and the other about the famed Champagne House Krug. My next guest next week will be Steve Ray, who has written a book called How to Get U.S. Market Ready. It's for wine and spirits brands that want to find out how to get into the United States market. I look forward to speaking with him and learning about his tips on writing his opus. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. This is Vigneto, a podcast. From the sun and soil they grow From the land and sea they roam